Welcome to the Social World Podcast. My name is David Niven. I trained as a social worker and have been a former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. Now, I currently run my own company, training people in the social care world. This podcast is going to be weekly and it will have comment and stories from the social world. Whatever's current, whatever's relevant, it'll have interviews with stimulating guests. Now, your comments are going to be very welcome. The website is www.dnivenassociates.co.uk and the Twitter address is at Dave Niven. So thanks for listening. Well, here we are at podcast two. And uh, I just thought I'd tell you what's on the menu today. Well, we're starting off having a look at the implications of the uh, new proposals to manage sex offenders. And I'd just like to have a look back at uh, work I've been involved with over the years and have a look at what they're proposing now and just see if it's going to be effective or not. Then I've got an interview with Jenny Randall. Now, Jenny is one of our associate trainers. She trains um, social workers and others in working with uh, young people who are looked after. But it goes way back with Jenny, and fantastically, she's just been nominated uh, and shortlisted for the Social Worker of the Year Awards in the Lifetime Achievement category, and we'll find out at the end of November how she's got on. So that's a really good interview with Jenny, just looking back over the years, the, the changes, the good, the bad, and talking about her book that will be coming out soon. And then finally, I just a segment I put in um, that followed on from a blog I did not long ago about predicting the future, the massive changes that people are predicting, and therefore the massive changes that societies will have to accommodate up and down the country. So, that's today's. Hope you enjoy it. Once again, child sexual abuse orders are in the limelight. Once again, the legislation to do with how we tackle sex offenders in the community, especially those against children, are being highlighted. Now, for years, we've campaigned to actually tighten things up against sex offenders, especially those uh, travelling abroad. And in the 90s, I was part of a group of people that pushed very hard for legislation. And this group, led by Baroness Lucy Faithful in the House of Lords, actually managed to achieve this in 1997 when the sex offenders legislation was enacted and the registration of offenders, the register was employed, and secondly, and the second half of this as well, was that extraterritorial legislation was enacted. That means that British courts could try British men for offending against children abroad if the country that they offended in didn't prosecute them themselves. This was fine, and a very good thing too, because thousands of men, thousands of men from Britain and other Western industrialised countries were travelling abroad with impunity, it seemed, to prey on children in third world countries. And at that time, it was mainly the Pacific Rim countries that were the target areas. Now, at the moment, 
it's been recognised that civil court orders designed to prevent sex offenders targeting children after they're released from prison are just not fit for purpose. Because experts are saying that uh, the the travelling abroad and using computers... Uh, It just wasn't being monitored and policed enough and there just wasn't the ability to do this. And also, the orders that prevented uh, offenders going near children into particularly prescribed areas, near schools, etc., just were failing to deliver what they intended to do. Now, I think there had been five prosecutions in the 1997 Act in the 13 years or 14 years that there have been in between. It was ludicrous. Other countries, America, Australia, Sweden, who had also enacted similar legislation, had been fairly vigorous in prosecuting offenders. But for some reason, Britain just lagged behind. And yet Britain's meant to have some of the most vigorous and stringent Um, laws against sex offenders. Now, the legal test that had to be satisfied, they reckoned, was just too high. So, here we are now, in October 2013, and the police will be given greater powers to restrict the freedom of individuals that they suspect of being a potential sex offender. Now, this includes um, people who have never been convicted. Their use of the internet and their travel will be totally scrutinised and they'll be prevented to travel if, if they feel that they have breached a sexual risk order, which is now what's coming in. And the government have said that the police would have far more reaching powers to restrict any person they judge to be a risk. But a second type of order, though for those people convicted or cautioned, is also proposed, and that's been called a sexual harm prevention order. And these would replace these previous orders we talked about before that were considered not fit for purpose. Now, I... Over the years, I've seen all sorts of things come in. We've had Megan's Law in the States being brought in in this country. We've had um, various things in different um, different states in America have had different things, whether everything from restrictions on travel to chemical castration to restrictions on areas that paedophiles or convicted sex offenders could travel to, could go to. But it just hasn't really worked. There's always been flaws. In the case of Megan's Law, my understanding is that this would identify people. It would be community notification. It would identify people in the community who have been convicted of offences against children. And the community, in knowing where they were, where they lived, in theory would actually then be able to take any steps and measures to prevent their children going near them and to monitor their actual behaviour. Now, surely it wasn't beyond the wit of the people drawing up that legislation to realise that what actually happened, happened, which was, if you were in Town A 
and identified at living at House B, and everybody knew that in that community in Town A. All you had to do was get in your car and go to Town B, where you weren't known, if you wanted to attempt to offend against children. It just didn't, it, it just didn't seem to work. And, and the actual recidivism rates, in my understanding, weren't significantly dented. Now, the second thing about this is, especially in the UK, we had and still have, if you look at the more popular press, a real problem with how we actually would deal with something like identification in the community, community notification of offenders. So, for example, when convicted paedophiles were recognised at living at a particular house, and this happened down on the, the south coast of England, mobs would gather outside that house and effectively drive the offender out of town. Now, they, they might have had some short-term satisfaction about this, that they'd actually moved that person away from what they considered to be far too close a risk to their children and their community. But what they failed to grasp was that they were just putting the problem on to another community and possibly even sending that offender underground, where it would be even more difficult to actually gauge and judge his behaviour. The other thing, too, was that the woeful ignorance of some of the population was demonstrated at this event as well, on two counts, to my view. Firstly, a lot of people took their young children along who held up placards saying, you know, pedo go home or get out of our town. And they actually involved children in these confrontational violent events. Now, nothing to do with the particular subject matter, but the actual behaviour that they encourage these children to participate in just doesn't bode well for how they behave as adults in future life and how they are demonstrated to about what you do in situations like this and how you actually go about confronting people they were actually encouraging violence and they were encouraging confrontation and they were encouraging hate. But the second thing about it was that there were some people even who unfortunately burned the house down of a paediatrician because they had the word ped at the front of their name. And to my mind this just demonstrated the absolute base ignorance of lots of people in our society unfortunately and that and that is actually the element that worries me as much as anything when you come to try and construct social policy and you try and construct safe measures within the community because we're never going to get situations where child offending is going to go away there's always going to be people in my mind who are addicted to uh, abusing children, we're never going to totally eradicate the problem from society. So we have to come up with measures that both control and educate. I hope that these recent measures 
go a little way towards that, but I don't know. I think the jury's still out as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to introduce Jenny Randall. Jenny is one of our best associates and Jenny trains people in working with looked after children, which has been a huge part of her working life. Now, Jenny has also just been shortlisted for the Social Worker of the Year Awards and we'll find out at the end of November how she gets on. But she's been put forward in the Lifetime Achievement category and that should tell you something about the experience she's got. Hi, Jenny. Welcome. Hello. I want just to start, if you could, by talking a little bit about what things were like when you first began social work, when you first began working with what were children in care. And, you know, what were the sort of, what was the environment like? What were the expectations like upon you as a young worker? I think the thing that was, when I came in, to, to, just to say I came into social work, I qualified just as the Seabone Reorganisation. Away on my training course, I went away from the old well and came back to the new generic Seabone department. My team manager said to me, oh, we need to give you a caseload, what are you interested in? I said mental health and he gave me child care and the rest is history. I think the thing to say about that though that was very different was although I say I had a child care caseload, and that indeed was the focus of the work, I had the whole family. Mm. So I may well have had other children in the family who were not in care. They may well have had an elderly relative or a member of the family who had mental health problems. So we were the family's social worker. And mm -hmm. that is really very different to being a looked after children or corporate parenting social worker um, in the current department. These days, that was the early 70s, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. you were considered to be a kind of um, a Jill of all trades, as they said in these days, wasn't it? That's what you were expected to be. Yes, absolutely. And we also, of course, did duty which was a generic duty and included, for example, dealing with any families who'd become homeless that day, um, mm. any duty calls for uh, mental health issues, and we did night duty as well for any of those um, events happening. Mm. So we had a generic caseload. Absolutely. I mean, it really was kind of all hands to the pump then, and you were meant to be, you know, almost like a, a mistress of everything, weren't you, in terms of your skills and transferable skills. People didn't realise the specialisations that were needed possibly quite then. No, but I think it was a very good grounding because even today when I'm working in a family, I'm using all of those skills. And I am working with the whole family. I think that the way in some we have divided specialisms, which now leads to a number of social workers with working with one family, can be very difficult for 
well, social workers, but more particularly for clients to deal it's with. It's like them going to a supermarket. It's like them going to a supermarket instead of the attention you get in a corner shop sometimes, as they have to spread That's themselves right. so thinly. Yes. But listen, one of the things that you did towards the middle, if you like, of your career essentially was you managed residential services and you managed a a unit that was particularly adventurous, if I could say that word, in terms of how it um, how it actually went about working with the young people, the multi-agency approach, and so forth. And you're now, this is your plug, Jenny, you're now writing a book about this that should be published, well, next year, we should imagine. Well, hopefully. Hmm. And um, so do you want to say a little bit about what, what was life like then managing... Um, not just a residential establishment, but a residential establishment in Essex that effectively was at the cutting edge, you could say, of multi-agency working. Well, yes. I mean, at the time, I think just to sort of slightly set the scene, um, many young people were, m many more young people were in residential care and some in big institutions, community homes with education. Um, so... My experience as a social worker had been of very institutionalised childcare, residential childcare. Mm. And I suppose I thought to myself I could probably do it better. And the opportunity presented itself uh, for the Corv Lane project in Thurrock in Essex, which was had been a pretty unremarkable, ordinary community children's home. Uh, I should say it had 19 beds when I took it over, which as a children's home is pretty extraordinary by today's standards. And what we did was we, we did two things really. Structurally, we looked at it in a very different way. We decided that we would have obviously residential social workers who did the day-to-day -day caring, but that we would also have a team of social workers who worked with just the young people who lived with us and their families. We would also have a team of what were then called juvenile justice workers who would work with any issues relating to the juvenile justice system for the children who lived with us. We also had our own fostering officer who moved some children on into family-based care. We had a CSV coordinator who used to find work placements for the older children. Uh, community service volunteers. Community service volunteers. Yeah. We also had a probation officer on secondment, which was uh, unheard of in those days. So we had a whole team of people who could hold that young person while they were in placement and mm -hmm. produce a very, very close working relationship between the individual bits of their lives. The second thing we did related to just the residential unit, and that was to try and introduce a regime that actually was as near to a environment. Could you say that again, Jenny? What was that? Environment in the sense that we would all, uh, the sort of home we would all wish to bring our children up in. 
Mm. So it was essentially non-institutional. And we attempted to set up this regime uh, to improve the residential care uh, of young people. Um, we also took a whole wide range of young people. We took in anybody who needed to be in care from the area. What age range was that? They were teenagers, but they might have come into care because they had been in, in the juvenile justice system. They might have come into care because they'd have been abused. The whole range. They may only need to stay two nights. Some stayed three and four years. So we had a whole wide range of, of people living, of young people living there. So it was an experiment. It was an unintended experiment. It started out because I thought things could be done better and was, I have to say, very successful. Okay, what's, what's the, um, the book now? I mean, what, what are you going to cover in that today? Who have you got involved what, in that? What I've done is I have contacted uh, the young people who used to live there and some of the staff who worked there. And I'm currently engaged in interviewing all of them about their experience. Hmm. There's nothing quite as powerful as first-hand experience, um, and that's what I'm collecting at the moment. It's interesting because the contacts have been easy, in as much as many of the young people have stayed in contact with each other over the years, and they've stayed in the same area, and many of them continue to be friends. So contact has been easier, and I was quite interested in why that was the case. Okay. Now, you've, you've obviously kept a very good network alive because that's proving such good primary material for your book. And, but as well as that, it must be quite sharp now, the, um, the challenges that you're seeing as you revisit people and talk about that time and you actually look around you now, I mean, what sort of lessons have we learned from then or what have we still got to learn that we should have learned all these years ago? What, what sort of things do you think about when you look at today's work? I think one of the huge disappointments for me looking back is that we really had not got... Uh, the care of, of children in the public care system uh, sorted very well. We persist in presenting them with a chaotic system of corporate parenting that frequently mirrors the chaos of the families and the lives that they have come from. We move children around. There's huge inconsistencies in the people that care for them. We have not got the support for leaving care sorted and we don't have the range of provision anymore. We don't have the opportunity for children to be out of family care for long periods of time if that is what they feel that they need. Um, so I, I think whilst we've got some things right, like reviewing is better, um, 
the whole who cares movement was wonderful in in the way that it has engaged young people in their own outcomes in looking at their own care so some things have changed but we haven't got it right yet by any means okay. well Jenny uh, we'll come back to you again when you've got the book out we've got the title we tell people where to buy it and we tell people how to deal with it um, I hope very much that you and your colleague will continue to deliver training for us because I know it really goes down a treat and Jenny Randall thank you very much for speaking to us today you're very welcome Now this is an expansion of a blog I did recently called What's Round the Corner. And really it's all about the future, and it's all about predicting the future. But it's not just quirky, headline-grabbing things. For me, it's the implications of these developments, these scientific advances, these social advances, and the impact it's going to have on the population. That's the most important thing, and the fascinating thing that I find to think about. So when you listen to some people who are involved in predicting the future, the social ramifications are, are mind-boggling. So there was a Cambridge research biogerontologist called Aubrey de Grey who predicted an startling development in our understanding of and our response to ageing. He said that in all probability there's somebody alive today who could well live till they're a thousand. Now that sounds unbelievable. But he went on to back it up with some evidence of research that's going on at the moment. And that included the one of the nearest living organisms in terms of the DNA makeup to man, which is the nematode worm. And apparently they have uh, isolated a protein in the nematode worm that actually has a direct causal link to aging and they've managed to apparently increase the lifespan of that worm by a factor of between three and five times and so the logical implication is that with some more research and some more work done the possibilities of uh, blocking the aging process in humans is that much closer. Now, I find that incredible. But if you think about that combined with the increase in um, replacement surgery, spare part surgery, if you like, and the uh, medical interventions to do with drugs in terms of preventing some of the more degenerative diseases, then you can possibly begin to see the aging of humans being interrupted and us living a much, much longer lifespan. A thousand years, though, I'm not so sure about. I mean, that still boggles the mind. But it does bring up some fantastic social implications as well. Till death us do part. Marriage, eh? 900 years of marriage? Interesting to maintain relationships that long. Also the idea, some people jokingly would say, well, that would mean that your children won't leave home till they're 300, which again has 
quite a, a startling effect on what could be. And also the various other sort of issues that we would have to do with employment. Can you imagine actually being employed in the same job for hundreds and hundreds of years? And oh, it's just, to my mind, it's just overwhelming. But that's where we're at. That's where scientific research is at. That's where technological research is at. Biotech. Blimey, there's the next thing. And as soon as something's invented and hit the streets, it's obsolete. That's the speed that we're moving at. And therefore, that's the speed that we've got to take the population with us at. Because, quite frankly, you can't have situations in which huge changes are developed and the population is light years behind. It would make for such an imbalanced society and again and this is where I would be particularly concerned, it would actually make for a wider gap between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. And again, it would just stretch that line to the limit and all the problems that that brings with it, all the tensions, all the confrontation, all the, the envy and all the distasteful social uprising that that would cause is just, I'm not sure if it's worth it, to be honest. If you also put on top of that the issue about feeding the world and how at the moment consumption is increasing by a factor of three, whereas production is only increasing by a factor of two, well, you can do the mathematics and the arithmetic for yourselves. Officially, the number of people suffering from acute hunger has apparently grown to between 900 and 1,000 million in the world today. And as countries such as China and India, those with the mega populations, as they develop their per capita consumption to match other industrialized countries, then we really are heading for a tipping point. Now, I've heard of expressions before. You say, well, how are we going to deal with this? You, you know, you just can't magic up. Apparently, in farming, I'm told that you take an average acre of farmland and it's got something like a 70% yield to it in terms of various different, different crops will have different yields, but on average about a 70% yield. But if you took that same acre of land and put a, a, a bubble over the top of it, made it hydroponic, in other words, soil-free, and just grew the uh, crops on minerals, then you would probably increase the yield to about 90-95%, which is massive when you think of the actual production in the world. And then, if you put each one of these acres on top of each other, say to about a height of 80 stories each one with a different crop, right in the middle of cities, where there'd be no transport costs, you suddenly might just have one possible way of increasing the actual production um, of food for the world. Secondly, there's another point about meat. And recently it has been proved, although it was terribly expensive, but it started growing meat in a test tube. 
I think there was that sort of thing that was saying the $25,000 hamburger that was created as a result of it. But that is, in fact, just the beginning. The technology is here. And very soon, I really suspect that we're going to be growing, or, or if that's the right word, meat in huge quantities in the um, laboratories. So you really have got to actually think that there are some solutions out there. But to get rid of that gap, you know, the fact of consumption three times production two times, that is massive in terms of the world's population. So we can't help but feel, I think, great concern for generations to come, what they're going to have to contend with. If we think we've got difficulties now with the growing population on the planet and the massive social upheaval that deprivation will continue to actually produce, Future generations have got real headaches on their hands.